0: Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the show you'll see the first of a new format in which I interview a Bible scholar or theologian on a book that has reached its 10th year of publication, which is of course a landmark uh, date. And so You may have noticed that up till now, I've mostly focused on books that are in the fresh out of the oven stage of publication, so to speak. And there are more of those kinds of interviews in the pipeline, fear not. But um, of course, there is also plenty of important research in the past that has sent shockwaves through the relevant sub-disciplines of this field, and it can be very valuable and rewarding to revisit these publications and reflect on their content, their reception, and of course their legacy. So today on the show, you'll hear the first of these interviews, and it's a conversation with Dr. Chris Keith. He's Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Notre Dame, Australia and St. Mary's University, Twickenham. And this discussion will be on his 2012 co-written volume, Jesus, Criteria and the Demise of Authenticity. This was a book that put forward a devastating challenge to modern methods of historical Jesus research and it has really pushed New Testament historians in the past 10 years to reconsider the way they do history for the better in in my view. Now before I turn over to the conversation I think it's important uh, to keep in mind this is not a episode that is asking about historical reliability of the New Testament or any of those very important, very interesting questions, this is a conversation about method. And so I personally find the question of historical methodology really interesting. You know, how is it that we should and should not investigate things that happened in the past? And it is Chris's conviction and it's my conviction that what is commonly called the criteria of authenticity approach for uncovering uh, the historical Jesus and um, the history of early Christianity, that this doesn't work and um, that we need to come up with some better ways of doing um, early Christian history. And um, what those are, of course, we barely touch on that in this episode, but the point of this episode is to show that the criteria approach is not the way forward. And that's the point of the book as well, which you can find linked in the description. So without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. And I really hope you enjoy this one. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you on.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: We're going to be talking about a book that you contributed to. that's turned 10 this year. And, uh, dare I say, an influential book by the name of Jesus, Criteria and the Demise of Authenticity. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But before we do that, I'd love to let the audience get to know you a little bit. So okay. I have a set of brief, fun questions here. And it'll come as, as no surprise to the listeners that I have a professor being interviewed here. And I suppose what they'd like to know is what is the best and worst thing about having such a job?
1: The best thing I think is uh, there is a relative amount of autonomy in it. Uh, You know, I, I, in normal times before the pandemic, I traveled a lot. So I used to say, I have lots of autonomy until I don't. And then I have none because when you're traveling and stuff, your schedule's really kind of not your own, but uh, under normal circumstances, Uh, compared to a lot of other jobs, there's quite a bit of autonomy. Given the number of really bad jobs there are in the world, there's, you know, the the worst thing about being a professor is not going to be that bad. But it also depends on what you mean by professor. I mean, if you mean anybody teaching at a university, you know, for a lot of assistant professors or adjunct professors... Uh, they're really not very good jobs at a lot of places. Uh, I, I won't lie. Being a full professor is a, a, is a nice job. Uh, once you become a full professor, uh, and you know, if you're at a, if you're at a university that pays well, that's different. There are a lot of universities that don't pay well and the, the junior positions and the contingent faculty at those places you know, they would be able to tell you some really worse things, you know, like, you know, uh, for me, this, I I think a silly thing that is that I I really hate being asked what I do when I'm on a plane. I (laughs) I just hate trying to explain it. You know, uh, a lot of my colleagues will just lie and say they do something else. i often say that I'm a history professor or something like that i i I don't know i i managed to tell the truth but i tell a version of it that will shut down further questions but but you (laughs) know there's there's not a really bad thing about my job uh there are aspects of it that i don't like but i feel bad complaining about him
0: yeah and i suppose the thing about uh, a career in uh something like biblical studies i understand it's almost impossible to get into the professor. Uh, ranks nowadays at universities yeah you know
1: yeah, yeah I mean I, I graduated my PhD in 2008 so just as the financial collapse was hitting in 2008 and so I was my my group was kind of the last one that proceeded all the way through the program with quite a bit in you know naivety about uh, whether we were getting jobs uh, but yeah right now there it's, it's really hard to get a job uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, again, I feel bad about complaining about it when there are a lot of people who would love to have my job. Um, yeah, I have, a, yeah. I have a good job.
0: Mm. And of course you were correct there. You weren't lying and saying that you are a historian and
1: you, you focus, <laughs> yeah, that's
0: true. you focus on the new Testament. Um, and this is kind of a question I like to ask a lot of, um, a lot of, um, contributors to the podcast. Um, if you could ask, Um, Normally, it's a Bible character, but because you're a historian of the New Testament, if you could ask a New Testament character, not named Jesus or Paul, one question, what would it be?
1: It would be the naked young man in Mark's gospel. I would ask him, what was going on here? (laughs) Where are your clothes? Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. what is this about? (laughs) Yeah. One of the most compelling answers to that question is that this is an authorial signature, you know, that this is, this is quote unquote Mark. But I think most people, even the ones that would say, yeah, I guess that's the best case explanation would hopefully be honest enough to say, that's not a very good explanation. That's not, you know, we we really have no idea.
0: (laughs) There are certainly a lot of questions in this field that we have no idea about, but what is a subdiscipline in biblical studies that you will never dare approach and why?
1: Well there are a lot there are a lot of subdisciplines that hang on particular particular language acquisition and I don't have any plans to acquire you know certain kinds of languages so I I could say that but the one that popped out when I read this question was there's a certain version of New Testament studies that is linguistics with computers and computer programs and it involves lots of math and formulas and charts and they have their own group at SBL. And I have no idea what they're talking about. I know that they're talking about like trends and, and they're, they're tracking particular usages of, you know, verbal phrases and stuff like that and, and doing linguistics that way. (laughs) But I, I will never dare approach it, and I won't because I don't understand what they're doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think the closest I ever got to reading something along those lines was when uh, I think there's that question of you know First Timothy uh, chapter two. It uses that really rare verb in Greek. I think it's like authention and everything. And I think yeah, there's a lot of like a lot of people are kind of banking on the guys who run like language programs on computers to just work out what does this really mean <laughs> because
1: yeah that's yeah. that's what happens you know somebody who is a who is a programmer and can write code writes a program that assesses you know all the times that you know this particular preposition is followed by this case you know uh in in a subordinate clause mm. and they run information you know they're starting to present this and you know, to my own detriment, I guess. As soon as I start hearing this, it's kind of,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, just, <laughs>
1: I, I know that it, I know that it means something, but um.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think that sounds um, like a nightmare for me as well. So you're not alone there. But um, the people who
1: do it, they're good at it, and I have no doubt that they look at the stuff that I do and they are equally bored. So right, right. More no. power to them.
0: Yes. And we'll get on to to, to talk about your book, um, but I think something that might help for context here is that you are the um, the director of the Center for the Study of Judaism and Christianity in Antiquity, if I'm uh, correct. And that used to be the Center for the Social Scientific Study of the Bible. Um, and that's, that's um, well, there's two universities, aren't there? St. Mary's and there's another one, isn't there?
1: That's right. It's now shared by St. Mary's and the the University of Notre Dame, Australia, and I hold a dual appointment at both universities, but it started out at St. Mary's when it was the Center for the Social Scientific Study of the Bible.
0: Yeah, and um, what exactly is this? What is the social scientific study of the Bible, and is this volume an example of that, would
1: you say? Social scientific study of the Bible can mean a variety of different things. Uh, In New Testament studies, it frequently means um well it it can really i guess really mean one of two things one is cultural anthropology applied to the study of the new testament so this would be what you find in what's called the context group uh and then there's a there's another more general understanding of social scientific study of the bible that means essentially what yale was doing in the 90s called social history and so you know the the way you the way you understand the difference between different methodological approaches is by focusing on what kinds of questions that they're trying to answer. And in social scientific study of the Bible, when I, as the director of the social scientific center for the social scientific study of the Bible, I had a very broad understanding of what social scientific criticism is. And it aligned, it did not exclude cultural anthropological approaches, but it aligned more directly with Very broad understandings of social history. So asking kind of questions like not just necessarily, you know, what did a particular word mean in the New Testament or what did, you know, but but what what did particular concepts, what were the social impacts of particular concepts or what were the New Testament authors trying to do with particular ideas in their immediate context and thinking about the larger, larger social implications, you know, not just what does this linguistic term mean for say money, but how was the, what was the, function and the nature of an- the ancient economy uh so those types of broader social questions was this book a, ver- a a version of that um well this book was put together we put this anthony ladon and i put this book together before i had the position at st mary's uh it, it we were colleagues at a, at another university um and we put that together. Really, uh, it came out of arguments that he and I were having in the, uh, the office every day. And mm-hmm. we kind of realized, hey, I think this is a, a topic we should pursue. And here's the dream team of what we'd like to do with it. So I can't say it's it, it would fall within social scientific study of the Bible because some of the stuff, some of the methodological approaches in there rely on social history. But it's not directly that.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, so that explains a lot. And um, we'll begin with one of your contributions um, to this book. And it's an essay about what's commonly called form criticism. Right. And um, what exactly is this? Um, (laughs) I suppose that's probably a a difficult question. Could you simply define that? And um, as well as that, you can answer this afterwards. Are there any academics today that would still openly subscribe to this, or is it kind of one of those things that's just in the past, sort of?
1: Yeah, well, to answer your last question uh, directly, um, it's kind of in between. It's neither in the past, nor is it widely uh, subscribed to uh, scholars today. Form criticism is the conviction uh, or the a, a method for studying the Gospels that essentially asserts that what we see in the Gospel narratives is not the way that the gospel tradition itself, stories about Jesus, were circulated among the earliest followers of Jesus. They assumed that the kind of narrative arcs that we see, the narrative frameworks, the storyline that we see in the gospels, that was all imposed later by uh, Hellenistic Christians. And the earliest Christians, the earliest followers of Jesus Uh, they passed this Jesus tradition around in forms. So not in a connected narrative, but in forms. So the goal of form criticism was to look at the gospel narratives and chop it up into its constituent pieces and try to recreate the earliest forms. And so you get different forms like miracle stories. They assumed that kind of all the miracle stories were grouped together or the confrontations between Jesus and other teachers, uh, the controversy narratives, that those were all kind of of a piece. So instead of looking at the gospel narrative as an organizing feature, they viewed the forms, uh, the different kinds of stories, the genres of little stories. Uh, parables, you know, is another common form. They assume that all the parables kind of were grouped together. Mm. Uh, so it was really an attempt to get behind the narratives of the Gospels to something that predated them, and uh, it was incredibly influential. Uh, it's still influential. Uh, my hat is off to the form critics. I mean, they're—I I love studying this period of scholarship. Uh, People accuse me sometimes of just not liking the form critics. Nothing can be further from the truth. I have utmost Rudolph Bultmann's greatest New Testament scholar of the 20th century, and there's not a close second. Uh, I just think he was wrong about this issue. If you had asked me the question about whether there are any modern day adherence to form criticism when I wrote that essay, I'd have told you no. Mm. What I was trying to address in that was that. Nobody calls it form criticism anymore, but the way that they think about and work with the gospel tradition, the way that historical Jesus research approaches how to get behind the text, that you should get behind the text, that these are all of the legacies of form criticism. Mm. That they're, they're important ways that God, and I would still say this, you cannot understand the modern shape of gospel scholarship without understanding Specifically, Rudolf Bultmann's history of the Synoptic tradition.
0: It seems what you're saying is it's it's controversial, but it's still very valued. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah. What happened was in in the 1950s, and then for a few decades after that, this is how you studied the Gospels. Yeah. I mean, this really was how you studied, and it was widespread. It, I, I to this day, I don't think there's another methodological approach, certainly in Gospel studies, that has anywhere near the impact that form criticism had. Uh, What happened was by the 80s, people were saying, well, we're not doing form criticism anymore. Hmm. But my observation was, yeah, but in important ways, you still are. You're, You're saying you're not, but all of your assumptions about what the gospel tradition is and how you use it in historical research, those were all bequeathed to you by the form critics. So you think we think we've moved on, but in reality, it's still there. Now, since. That essays come out, I have come across major New Testament scholars who still adhere to form criticism to my surprise so so there are still some form critics out there
0: fascinating, okay, interesting so that's one of the one of the ways your thoughts have developed in some ways since you wrote this essay then that you're
1: yeah well yeah. I mean. Whether they whether they adhere to it or not, the influence of form criticism is still there, right? Yeah. Um, but to my to my serious surprise, there actually were people. There are people who who would say, "No, form criticism is still right." Now, yeah. the vast majority of New Testament scholars would say, "No, no, no, we've moved on from that."
0: Mm, okay, and this is where the the question of the, the criteria of authenticity, which is the subject right. of the book, the main one. That's where it comes comes into focus because you you make the claim that the criteria of authenticity this is a quote have emerged from their form critical umbrella and become a force in and of themselves and um just before we discuss that a bit more could you maybe for the audience just give some examples of the criteria of authenticity for the listeners yeah um and just just to explain that a little bit
1: so, and the criteria or the, the easiest way to think about it, or I always think about it was that the, the um, I, I grew up with this uh, toy. There was this toy when I was a kid that you would use with Play-Doh and you'd stick Play-Doh into it and then you'd crank this lever down and then whatever shape you put on the front of the little machine. Did you have this when you were a kid?
0: I don't think we
1: had this in Ireland, but... um, Not in Ireland? Do you know what Play-Doh is, though? Yes, yes. Yeah, Yeah, okay. So you would put the Play-Doh in this little thing that was like... uh that had a lever on it. And then you would push it through um, the the front of the little machine there. And it would come out in the form of like spaghetti or something like that. Right. Okay. And whatever the, whatever came out on the other side, you know, you, you play with, and the criteria of authenticity function like this, you put all, you, you put all the gospel tradition in this, in the criteria, you crank them down and then whatever survives the criteria, that's what historical Jesus scholars would identify as historical Jesus material. And then you could build your historical Jesus with whatever survived the, the you know, the trial. Uh, and so some of, and they're all logical. So the, the uh, so for example, one of the most common ones is the criterion of multiple attestation, which asserts that if a particular story or saying of Jesus is attested by more than one independent source, Uh, or, Or let me say it a different way. The more independent sources it's attested by, the more likely it is that the historical Jesus said it. Another famous one is the criterion of dissimilarity, which asserts that any tradition that's dissimilar from Jesus, from what preceded Jesus in second temple Judaism, or anything that's dissimilar from what came after Jesus in the early church, that was more than likely historical Jesus material. So for example, The son of man traditions often passed in in these usages, the criterion of dissimilarity, because it wasn't really popular in Second Temple Judaism. And Jesus's identity as son of man wasn't like it didn't figure in the creeds. It didn't seem to be picked up by most uh, early Christians. And so they assumed that, okay, it didn't come from Second Temple Judaism, didn't come from the earliest disciples. It must be Jesus himself. Uh, another one's a criterion of embarrassment, that which asserts that the early church is inherently unlikely to make up anything that would have embarrassed them. So if there's anything in the Gospels that we know would have embarrassed them, they're, it's likely in there because Jesus really did it or said it. Uh, you know, there was this inherent pressure uh, on them to include it.
0: Yeah, okay, That's that's very helpful and a few good examples there, but it was kind of um, I've always wondered it it almost seems like this approach is um exclusive to to new testament studies almost um and I'm wondering like are there any other examples where people are using this? Are they using this when they're trying to reconstruct the history of Greece or uh you know or the Romans or whatever? Uh, yeah. It would seem, yeah,
1: yeah, you get scholars do this sometimes where they're like, uh, these are just normal historical. Uh, practices and you know here's somebody here's somebody writing a history of alexander the great and look they do something that looks very similar to the criterion of embarrassment or the let's see there's another one called the criterion of contrary to tradition that basically works the same way that says that if if we know that there's an agenda of a particular author but there's a story that undermines that agenda right that that the story's probably there because it it really happened. Uh, that they didn't that they they didn't include stuff on purpose that would have undermined what they're trying to accomplish, and and people will say, look, we we can see where other historians use the same kind of principle. Nobody would have said this particular thing about Alexander the Great, given what we know that you know this historian's trying to do. So that probably happened to an extent. That's correct. But the way that the criteria of authenticity were grouped together and became for decades the only way to do historical research in Jesus studies is unique to Jesus studies. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Nobody else did it that particular way as a general principle. I mean, Jesus historians really, in my opinion, have not come to grips with the fact that we were we were for decades just having an in-house conversation that really nobody else was having. So yeah, can you find some parallels to a few of them outside of Jesus Studies? Yes. But the way that they dictated the nature of the conversation was unique to unique to Jesus Studies.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to the, the criteria approach, um, the whole point of um one of your, your essays in this book is to show that it's um it's dependent on the ideas of form criticism. Right. And um, how, would you, how would you begin to show that? You know, you don't have to read out the whole essay <laughs> right yeah. now, but, but how, how would you, like, basically make that case?
1: Well, I would start to make the case by pointing out the focus on individual units of tradition. In German, Einzelstücke. The, 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 the criteria of authenticity are interested in testing the status of individual units of tradition. Uh, so, individual sayings, individual claims about Jesus, or not claims, but individual texts about Jesus, all right, uh, tra- individual traditions. So, little units, not the connected narrative, all right, not the narrative of the Gospels, but individual units of tradition. And individual units of tradition is exactly how the form critics conceptualized. The Jesus tradition. And it it was form critics who created the criteria of authenticity in the form that they came to be practiced by the 70s and 80s. It was in particular students of Rudolf Bultmann who disagreed with him on a variety of other things, but totally agreed with him on how you do history with the Gospels. And that it's you. the first thing you do is you break it down into individual units of tradition. I mean, they start their books saying exactly this. Gunther Borncomb says exactly this when he starts uh, his famous Jesus book.
0: Mm. And it's fascinating because I think uh, the criteria approach is very common in, in kind of more, I would say, apologetic um, yeah. Perspectives from evangelicals, and yet, at the same time, I think a lot of them would be very uncomfortable with form criticism, for instance. So it's interesting yeah. that those those two things have uh, that's happened. You know,
1: you're right. The criteria are really am, uh, uh, popular in apologetic circles because they conceptualize it as their means of going behind enemy lines, and the. But you're exactly right. Ernst, Ernst Kasemann, who to a large extent, is responsible for the development of the criteria of authenticity, uh, He starts his famous Jesus essay stating explicitly that form criticism has demonstrated the mythological, ahistorical nature of the gospels. But he's convinced that there are little units of tradition that are still historical, and he conceptualizes the criteria of authenticity as the the means of testing those small pieces. So he throws his hands up at the beginning and says, the Gospels aren't historical, but they might have little historical bits in them that we can recover. Now, fast forward, you have apologetic Gospel scholars who will say in print you cannot use the criteria of authenticity to disprove the authenticity of the gospel traditions, but only to prove the authenticity. They never prove inauthenticity, but they can prove authenticity. And this is such a sleight of hand, and it's also disingenuous. The, the criteria of authenticity began with the assumption that the gospels were not historical and they never mm. mention this part. They they conveniently leave this part of the history of research out. So instead what they do, you know, Ernst Kasemon treated everything as if it wasn't historical, but maybe we can rescue a little bit. And what the apologetic scholars do is, well everything's neutral. Now we know they're not re- they don't really think they're neutral, but this is what they'll say. Everything's neutral and then we can prove that some of it really did happen, but we can't disprove any of it. Mm. Yeah, we're not having the same conversation at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course not all not all apologists would use the approach, but it is kind of a it definitely is a trend, I think in
1: no, but the ones yeah, that use yeah. the criteria of authenticity do, yeah, yeah, yeah that's the way yeah. they use
0: it. It's interesting. one thing you note in the essay is that the criteria of authenticity assume a definition of the word authentic. What does this word right. mean? and it essentially yeah. amounts to does not reflect the theological interpretations of the gospel authors and their mm-hmm. communities. that's right. Yeah and um, a question i have is do you think on this approach it would be impossible to identify like a historically ironic event suppose it's difficult to identify them anyway you know when you're talking about ancient history but you know th- there's so many like weird ironic things that happen all the time and they they happened back then as well so it, yeah. it, it just seems a little bit of a Give
1: me an example of what you're talking about.
0: I mean take for example you know when the chinese they discovered gunpowder and they actually um wrote I think uh they wrote in um a, a journal. They wrote in a journal that this was the uh elixir of immortality. And that's of course pretty ironic because it's a it's not just a pretty stupid thing to say, it's also like a very
1: um Well, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize yeah. is named after somebody who invented dynamite. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, <laughs> there's another example, yeah. 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 So it seems that like you couldn't have anything that is theologically fits. It feels if if you um, yeah. if you accept this this a view of authentic, you know.
1: First of all, I do think that the criteria is an unnecessary straitjacket on the historical ju- discussion, and they struggled. That you can see people struggle with it now when they continue to try to use it. They struggled with it then. I mean, th- there were Jesus scholars who said, "Look, just because something just." Because criticism, uh, which was their term for scholarship sometimes, just because criticism might not affirm the authenticity of something does not mean that it didn't happen. Because they realized, and this is what happens, you know, if you only build your historical Jesus out of stuff that you're absolutely certain about, right, your historical Jesus looks really weird and kind of could never have existed as a historical person. I mean, this is one of the most trenchant and correct, in my opinion, criticisms of the criterion of dissimilarity, because it produces a Jesus. If if you only go by what makes it pass the litmus test, then it's stuff that's different from Second Temple Judaism and stuff that's different from the early church. Well, how do you explain then the historical facts that Jesus was a Second Temple Jew and that the early church arose out of the movement claiming him? Uh, as its founder. So, you know, this is a, a Dagmar Winter and gerd Tyson uh, in a very influential, rightly influential book kind of raised this point, but, but the, it straight jackets the historical discussion and, and doesn't leave any creativity on the part of the historian for accounting for weird things that happen all the time yeah. in, in history. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, I, one of my more general criticisms of this approach is just that it's not a good way to do history, and it's boring.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I think boring, boring is the right word, and the the world is uh, more complicated than the criteria would.
1: Make, yeah, that's exactly think, right. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And I'd like to, you know, shift the discussion to talk about some of the specific criteria, some of the mm-hmm. some of the issues with them. So, um, you know, the one that is perhaps most widely recognised and used as, you know, the criteria of multiple attestation, and this is the idea that, you know, if something appears in two independent sources, and it's more likely to be uh, historical. And, you know, on the face of it, someone might argue that, you know, that's is that not just a common sense way of doing history? And uh, how would you, and of course, the relevant contributor in this book is Mark Goodacre, who is, uh, I love his stuff uh, so mm-hmm, much.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, how does he respond?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't dare speak for Mark Goodacre, uh, <laughs> but you know I get asked this question a lot, and my answer is the criterion of multiple attestation gives you absolutely no means of distinguishing between what really happened in a really successful lie hmm. or a really successful misunderstanding. You, you, it, it's. There's a veneer of doing history, but you're not really doing history. What you're what you're recognizing is how widespread certain convictions are. But the prominence of certain convictions may or may not have to do with what really happened. Uh, You know, I live in a country right now where an absurdly large number of people think that the election was stolen. It wasn't. There's no evidence that it was. But some historian will look back and say over 60 percent of Republicans in the United States of America in 2021, 2022 thought the election was stolen. All that tells you is how widespread belief in that lie is. It doesn't tell you anything about what really happened. So the problem with the criterion of multiple attestation, you know, that's that's my problem with it. I will speak for Mark very briefly in terms of his point in that book. One of the things that there is a problem is the criterion of multiple attestation is dependent upon independent testimony. Well, and that's a whole separate discussion. What you know, if a if a tradition occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you think nobody had access to each other, then that's four independent traditions. But if you happen to think like I do that Luke and Mark, or Luke and Matthew, were both using Mark as a source, then something that shows up in mark and luke or matthew isn't two independent sources if it shows up in all three of them it's not three independent sources and if you think john knew the synoptics which i tend to think that's not an independent source either so you actually need a solution to the synoptic problem and to the question of john's relationship to the synoptics before you can even activate the logic of the criterion of multiple attestation
0: yeah and another thing that um we had dale allison on um a few months ago, and uh, one he's kind of made a similar point in that if you uh, to, if you accept you know that the traditional authorship in any sense um, something like that uh, uh, Peter is somehow behind uh, Mark, which you know you can make a reasonable case for that I think, or that um, John was there was an apostle called John who was some sense behind John, well. These two people knew Paul. And so, in a sense, these people are, are all hanging about each other. So, in what sense yes, are Mark. they actually independent?
1: And furthermore, how do you know how would we even if there's a tradition that's common between Mark and say John, how do we know that John knew that only from Mark? As if Mark's the only follower of Jesus that ever told that story? Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. No. As you
1: said earlier, history is a lot more complicated than that. And and so one of the things that I think we need to do is be a lot more comfortable using our historical imagination.
0: Another one that I think this idea of historical imagination comes into play is the, the another criterion, which is the criterion of embarrassment. And, you know, something has always seemed off to me about this one. Um, right. I've not actually. I've not always known what it actually is, and uh, maybe before I ask you the question, I can share one example. You know, there was um, uh, I was listening to a, a more one of the more conservative uh, evangelical voices, and he was basically saying, "Well, how do we know that um, Peter betrayed Jesus?" And he said, "Well, it's because this fulfills the criteria of embarrassment," and right. uh, and I, I was kind of just thinking, "Well." All you need to do is use, like, perhaps, um, and I don't actually believe this or anything, and I'm I'm not an expert on this, but, well, perhaps Mark was written from a Pauline perspective and uh, that was anti-Petrine, you know, and in that case, you know, it was just, they were trying to frame Peter as bad, you know, so just use your imagination like that and you can think of some historical circumstance, yeah. you know.
1: Or or maybe, maybe Peter's failures were a badge of honor for him by the time that he by the time he was in the in the 50s or 60s yeah you know yeah. or or maybe peter's followers you know d- who knows who wrote mark's gospel but maybe people who knew peter didn't they they thought that was a badge of honor you know you and i both come from christian traditions i'm sure you've heard a testimony before and you know sometimes when i was younger listening to people give testimonies it seemed like you know it became a contest to see who could be craziest before they ever met Jesus, you know? And, yeah. and so people are amping up their sinful past because the more sinful you are somehow the, the better Jesus is, you know, the the better savior he is, I guess. In which case none of these people were actually embarrassed of the, what their sinful past. They were by this point in time, quite proud of it because um, it let them have a great testimony. So, And Paul says, you know, he know Paul knows he's supposed to be embarrassed about Christ crucified, but he's not. So there's a lot more complex relationship between embarrassment and the way people think about the past. Uh, you know, Raphael's chapter in this, which is a great chapter, but his argument is that we just don't know enough about what made people embarrassed. Like one of the one of the common things that people will say passes the criterion of embarrassment is John's baptism of Jesus the followers of Jesus would have never made up the idea that Jesus submitted to a baptism by John the Baptist much less in in some traditions the a, a baptism that's for the repentance of sins they believed he was sinless why would he do this so therefore the logic goes he this must have actually happened well It doesn't take long to notice that this butts up directly against the criterion of multiple attestation. John's baptism of Jesus is one of the few things that occurs in all four of the earliest Gospels. So what are we supposed to make of this? Like, they were so utterly embarrassed that every single one of them put that story in there. How embarrassed were they if they all include it? You know, it, it it just didn't. The idea that early Christians could have been embarrassed about something is legit. That might be the case. But whether that tells us what really happened is totally suspect, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it it just it just it just always struck me as I I think easy is the right. It just sounds too easy as a criteria. It
1: is. And I think there's kind of a veneer of method to it. You know, uh, it looks like we're being scientific. It looks like we we have these principles and we're going to do history in this 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 way. Uh, You know, this is how we're scholars. We're not just out there shooting from the hip. You know, we've got these these methods that we're going to use. Uh, and I think that's part of the apologetic appeal of the criteria as well, is that they can say, oh, this isn't faith. This is just scholarship. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, embarrassment. Yeah, early Christians undoubtedly were embarrassed about all kinds of things. How that relates to historical Jesus is much more complex and unpredictable, I should say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to bring up one of the more unusual, but um, interesting criteria, which isn't actually addressed in this volume. And how I know if this is actually um, by listening to um, your good friend, Mark Goodicker again. Uh, he has yeah. an excellent podcast that people can check out called NT Pod. But he has, he has an episode on this criteria of view common to friend and foe right and this is the idea that if it's being assumed by both antagonists of christianity and the people who um and the christians themselves as something that historically happened then it's more likely to be historical and what do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of this one
1: I don't really think there are any strengths to it, to be honest with you. I, again, I think that this is this is a veneer of historical research that's not real. Like, f- for example, all right, what is something that we have that both friend and foe affirm? All right, that Jesus did Jesus comm- D- Jesus did exorcisms. That's something that both friends and foes affirm. Jesus did exorcisms, uh, and uh, or that Jesus was a carpenter. That's something that friends and foes both affirm. Mm. Well, the fact that the Gospels think Jesus performed exorcisms and the fact that uh, the rabbinic literature thinks Jesus performed exorcisms, does that tell us that Jesus really did it? Mm. Or does it tell us that that was just a really common perception of him? And then it's up to us to decide, well, why would everybody have had that perception. What was What was he doing that gave people that impression? You know, you can't, you can't really answer that question without answering some other questions about whether you believe in the supernatural and that kind of thing. So just because friends and foes both affirm it, in my opinion, doesn't mean that it happened. All it means is it could have that. That's one explanation among many. And it's the work of the historian to sift through the variety of explanations you know, let me give you an example where I think we actually know, know something. Friends and foes both think Jesus was a carpenter. They also both think he was crucified. All right. I think the reason that most people think Jesus was crucified in the ancient world is because he actually was crucified. All right. But their common perception doesn't in and of itself prove directly that that's the case. You still have you have to go through a mediating process question which is why did they think that right and it just so happens in the case of the crucifixion that the most economical likely explanation is well because that's what that's probably what really happened yeah but if you try to apply that same type of argumentation to say the transfiguration or something like that you're in a totally different world that it's a different it's a different kind of discussion
0: yeah yeah and i suppose um that we also have to keep in mind this if it's, it's also, it's, it's not necessarily friend and foe, it's friend and the friend's reporting of what the foe (laughs) thought, you know? (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right. And furthermore, you don't know, we don't know, like, for example, friend and foe both thought he was a carpenter. Chelsus in the second century thinks Jesus is a carpenter. Yeah. Chelsus thinks that because that's what he read in Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So do we know that, Chelsea really thinks that or do we just know that he's trying to debunk or or to use mark against himself against christians use use christians against themselves yeah. i'd say the latter is more likely the case so as you wisely said earlier it's just always more complex than that
0: so we've uh you've obliterated a few of those um <laughs> criteria now but um i suppose the audience you know they, they might be thinking well if if not that approach, then what? So what are some examples of um excellent, you know, historical Jesus Jesus scholarship? Could you point the audience to that that don't make use of this uh, criteria system?
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned Dale Allison earlier. Yeah. And uh I think Dale Allison is the greatest living Jesus scholar. Uh I, I he I like him as a person, uh, I like his work. Um uh, he was writing Constructing Memory or Constructing Jesus um, about the same time that I was working on Jesus' literacy. So I, a lot of times people, I've, I've read reviews of my own work that said he was following Allison. I, I wasn't, but uh, but he, but I largely ended in the same place as he did. But what he does in Constructing Jesus, I think, is a really good example that you don't need the criteria of authenticity to come to some historical conclusions. Um, and he, he, you know, he does this criterion of uh, uh, what recurrent attestation, where uh, and, and people confuse. They say, "Oh, well, this is the same thing as multiple attestation." It's not really, because what he says is there is this wholesale picture of Jesus, and we need to explain how it is that they came to this big picture of Jesus. For example, that he was an eschatological prophet or an apocalyptic apocalyptic prophet he does not think that that the multiply attested nature of traditions proves that it really happened what he thinks is it proves it proves what we need to explain and he is not working at the level of individual traditions where he's going to give a thumb up thumbs down on every single text what he's saying is there's a composite picture here we need to explain this composite picture, uh, and so I think he's he's in. I think he does it very very well. Uh, I mean, I've offered my own attempts to to answer historical Jesus questions without the criteria of authenticity as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a fan of those, but yeah, but, yeah. Dale, but Dale is the best.
0: Yeah, and especially just when reading his most recent book on the resurrection, you know, it's just it's just breathtaking just how analytically is you know and just how ruthlessly uh uh searching for um uh the history is without you know putting things through this uh machine as you put it <laughs> earlier right. so yeah yeah
1: i think i think dale's a very good scholar very very good scholar
0: we're getting towards the end of our time and it's been uh sure. g- great speaking to you and um i suppose a couple of questions before we um finish um and uh, this is on a more uh, theological note, I was pleasantly surprised to find, you know, a pastorally sensitive chapter uh, written by Scott McKnight in this academic volume. And he's one of my favorite um, theological minds, you know, um, okay. he he's also done some uh, historical stuff, hasn't he, as well? But he's, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. But he's a great theologian as well. Big so, book
1: on Jesus' death.
0: Yeah, yeah. So was this this your idea to have him? And um, what do you think are the benefits of having a a theologically motivated chapter in this kind of book?
1: Yeah, it was my idea. And I thought that it was important because theology is the elephant in every room in historical Jesus studies. Hmm. Everybody's trying to figure out what someone's theological position is and assume that you know, their historical argument is in some way or another being, you know, the rudder for that argument is their theology. And, and it happens in both directions. You know, believers think this about unbelievers. Unbelievers think this about believers. It's, it's an inescapable part of the dialogue. Uh, but the quest for the historical Jesus has at every point been animated by the church's confession of Jesus. It has always defined itself in some position to what the church says about Jesus. And that, that was true when it started. It's true now. And so for me, it felt like just saying, yeah, this is part of the discussion. So let's go ahead and have it. The other reason that I wanted to include it was um, if you read that book carefully, Jesus criteria and The Demise of Authenticity, you'll see that we all agree that criteria of authenticity kind of don't work. Or they're in severe need of repair, but we disagree about why, and we disagree with about where that leaves us. And uh, so Scott's chapter, to a large extent, was: look, historical Jesus research doesn't really matter for the church for these, for this, that, and the other reason. Hmm. Uh, well, Dagmar Winter's chapter in that book is from the polar opposite perspective the historical jesus research very much does matter for the church because if it's not done well it can be the handmaiden of really really bad church practices Uh, she specifically brings up the Aryan jesus created by some of the nazi historical jesus scholars Hmm. so uh you have two opposing positions one person saying historical Jesus research doesn't really matter, and one saying it does. Now, they're kind of speaking to different audiences. You know, Scott McKnight is speaking to the church crowd saying, hey, look, you don't need to get so scared about this. And um, Dagmar is kind of speaking to, I would say, scholarship, saying your what you are doing has ramifications in the church, and you need to be careful about it. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I I wanted it in there because it is it is part of the discussion, and it always yes. has been.
0: And of course, uh, if I'm correct, Dagmar Winter, she's actually a um,
1: Anglican bishop. She,
0: Anglican bishop, yes, yes. That's right. So, um, yeah, she obviously has a um, a lot of uh, a lot of passion for the church as well. Do, so, d- is it a matter of do you take sides in this? Do you agree more with Scott, or do you agree more with? Dagmar, or what do you think
1: well i think i think there are bits and pieces that you can understand from both um i mean if i had to pick between the two i would side with dagmar but i see what scott's saying and you know i it, it, you probably didn't know this but th- that book along with a couple of other things pretty much cost me and anthony ladon jobs uh, you know that that book was originally conceived to try to help the university where we were, this small Christian university, kind of get on the scene of New Testament scholarship. And based on some of my publications and based on his publications, um, the administration fired him. Uh, they didn't renew his contract. They didn't tell him till like May, so they totally screwed him over. But um, and then I left as a result of that. And so. You know, I was we were working on this book in a context where people were really scared about historical Jesus scholarship, and it had you know serious effects. So I really also have a lot of respect and appreciation for Scott for trying to say, "Hey, look, you you don't need to be afraid of this um, from a theological perspective." I think the other side of that coin is certain certain theological perspectives are rightly afraid of historical Jesus scholarship because they've because in reality they don't believe in a historical Jesus.
0: Okay, could you repeat that last sentence one more time?
1: Oh, yeah. What I'm saying is I think yeah. Scott is correct to say that Christian belief in and of itself does not need to fear historical Jesus yeah. scholarship, right? But there are some Christian perspectives that rightly are afraid of historical Jesus scholarship because it does threaten their concept of Jesus. Yeah. And their concept of Jesus is largely an ahistorical Jesus.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, yes, I, I get that, of course. So,
1: so, In other words, what I'm saying is when some really super conservative people get afraid of historical Jesus scholarship, I understand what they're doing because they're right. They're right. We are we are questioning things that they hold sacred. But I think Scott is right also to say that, look, at the end of the day, the church has always affirmed a historical Jesus and never not affirmed one. And furthermore, they've always taken their historical cues from the Gospels. Uh, So, you know, my point is I could see both sides. But if you put a gun to my head about this, heaven forbid you ever do that. But if you did, I would say I think at the end of the day, Dagmar is right. That there's very significant ramifications for historical Jesus research, and that scholars have to be aware of that.
0: I suppose the last question I'd ask um, is that, reflecting on this on this book, do you think bit of drama uh, surrounding it that you mentioned there? But do you think do you think this book has contributed to academic progress and you know our less new testament historic historians using the criteria of authenticity today was it was it worth the, yeah. worth the firing and
1: <laughs> <that work>? uh, <laughs> well uh yeah i mean it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me in retrospect but um although uh it, it it wasn't much fun at the time and it was worse for anthony yeah. um we always knew the book was going to be contentious i mean we we never shirked from that we, we wanted a, a contentious book that, that's, you know, we, it wasn't, we had one publisher wanted to do this as a point counterpoint, you know, back and forth and said, no, 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 we never want, this isn't a balanced. We don't want this to be a balanced discussion. We want this to be a punch. Uh, so we kind of always knew that it was going to be controversial. <laughs> we didn't know that, you know, we wouldn't be working for that university anymore. Um, but I guess it depends on how to answer your question about progress. It depends on how you measure progress. Uh, we wanted to put out a book that whether you agreed with it or not, everybody going forward in historical Jesus books, we're going to have to interact with it. You know, it couldn't be ignored. You were at least going to have to deal with it. And I think to that extent we were successful. Uh I'm biased on this, but uh, yeah, I think there are a lot, there are a whole lot fewer New Testament historians who are using criteria of authenticity. I, I, in fact, would say 10 years on, it's probably the rare person who comes out and says, no, these are totally fine. In fact, since that book's come out, I don't think I've seen anybody said these are all fine. Even the people who want to keep using them will say there were some valid criticisms in that book and there was some refining that needed to happen. Uh, So, Yeah, I think, I I think there, there has been progress. Now I get people complain to me all the time that, okay, well, where do you go from there? You know, as if this was a weakness of the book that we didn't point everybody to where they should go then. And I always think, well, that the book wasn't designed to do that. And we didn't want to set the agenda at that time for what, for what comes next. We were just pointing out that these don't work.
0: Mm. And of course, That's always the thing. You don't always have to have uh, something positive to say, you know. Have something that's right. You know, it's taken ten years.
1: It's taken ten years. James Crossley and I are now working on a very big project that Erdman's will be publishing, called "The Next Quest for the Historical Jesus." So I do, I do now have some questions about where we go from here, or have some answers for where we go from here. But I never, I never viewed previously my lack of answers for that question as somehow a detriment to the contribution of the book because yeah. it's not what it was trying to do.
0: What would um if you could just give like a minute teaser of what's that new quest going to what going to involve?
1: Well, the starting points are going to be that the we assume that the criteria of authenticity don't work. We're not having that discussion anymore. We're moving on from that. We're going to assume uh that the caricature of Jesus as Jewish carried an underlying anti-Semitism, you know, the the scholarship of the eighties and nineties that insisted that Jesus was, you know, the most Jewish Jew, uh, you know, my colleague James Crossley had a very uh, convincing and impactful study on this, you know, trend of wanting Jesus to be Jewish, but not that Jewish. So we're assuming that that's, that that issue is settled and moving on. And inviting a wide variety of contributions. We view this as a more curious quest, a a quest that throws the doors open to all kinds of different methods and emphasizes comparative studies. You know, you mentioned Dale Allison's new book on the resurrection, which engages heavily with comparative studies. Um, That needs to happen more. That historical Jesus studies needs to be more in dialogue with the humanities in general. Uh, and that we need, uh, frankly, a lot more voices other than just, uh, you know, uh, white men. Uh, And we need a lot more methods involved. And uh, so this book, or this book and this project, in our opinion, is kind of throwing the doors open to all kinds of things that were kept off the table or minimized before.
0: I look forward to uh, following that. I'm sure sure it'll be interesting and Thanks a million for coming on the show. It's been fascinating talking.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and I appreciate it. Uh, I, I really do. Thanks for taking the time.